The goal is active citizens that know something about the world and can actually do something about it. Hi, everyone. This episode is the eighth and final episode in a series of podcasts we are doing on the IB approaches to learning skills known as the ATLs, which are at the core of all four international baccalaureate programs. This episode is a sort of panel discussion looking at the big idea of using approaches to learning as a framework within IB to deliver the promise of an IB education as captured in the IB mission. My guests are Adrienne von Freder Jervis, Nigel Gardner, and of course John Harvey, who has developed and led this series throughout. With this episode, we are taking time to look at what might be missing, what might be done better, and what each of you in an IB school can do to make the approaches to learning more useful to your teachers and your students. Welcome to IB Matters, a podcast for those who currently teach, lead, attend, or are interested in international baccalaureate IB schools. Hi, folks. Welcome back to IB Matters. And this is the eighth and probably the final episode in our series of uh, podcasts with John Harvey uh, on the approaches to learning skills from the IB world. And uh, for this episode, it's kind of unique. Both John and I have been talking all along about the fact that the final episode would be different. Um, This episode is really a chance to give agency to those of you listening, uh, work with IB and so on. And we brought in a couple of special guests. One is a head of school. Uh, his name is Nigel Gardner, and he works with John. And another is a return guest from those of you that have been listening to the podcast for years. Uh, we brought back Adrian von Vader Jervis, uh, and he is also one of the uh, people that that I know from our past experience is a is a thinker in the educational world. And so we thought, and John suggested these two guests because they've been thinking about IB, about ATLs, and some different ways of doing that. With that in mind, let me get to the outcomes. Essentially, you know, just if I had one outcome, it would be giving you agency, the listener agency, to make these practices your own. But specifically, we're going to take a look at the fact that the ATLs are not a fixed set of to-dos, but rather can and should be adapted to your school's needs. Uh, We want to hear from these experienced educators I just talked about and uh, practitioners about how they've made the ATLs their own. And finally, to encourage and model for you introspection of your own practice, even when working in an established framework like the IB, because I know from my experience, sometimes teachers will go, well, I just have to follow the rules. Tell me what to do. And it's certainly that's not the approach we are encouraging here. Uh, right, John? That's that's correct. Yes. Not the approach we're encouraging at all. Yeah, definitely take some ownership and and uh, make these things your own. So uh, with that uh, introduction, um, let's just uh, go around the room real quick and have each person say hi. And then uh, John will come back to you and kind of you can lead the way as we go into this topic. So um, first of all, John, you can everyone knows you already. Why don't you go ahead and say something? Hi everyone. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that I've managed to bag uh, Nigel and Adrian to join us on our final uh, ATL uh, podcast for this series. Those of us that have been listening um, have got their ideas, want to also share their thoughts uh, in future podcasts, then I think that'd be great to sort of have that encouraged. Yeah. Thank you. Why don't you say hi, Nigel? Hi, um, hi everybody. I'm, I'm really looking forward to being on this. I'm going to give both John and John warning already as as one John knows already, I'm Welsh and I talk way too much because I am Welsh. So sorry, guys, you're going to have to probably do a lot of editing, but uh, I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> All right, good. And uh, hi, Adrian. 
Hi everyone. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm quite keen to explore where we can take ATLs um, in terms of building to the bigger picture of um, IB, particularly in regards to my favourite topic. Good. Well, let's bring it back to John, and um, uh, why don't you start us out with uh, what your thoughts are here today, John? Yeah. Thanks, John. And, and I think what what's great uh, for the listeners is that I think all three of us have got some really different takes um, on on where we think. Uh, the ATL skills can go from from here on in. So I I hope the uh, the variety of thoughts um, is 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 good for everyone. So I'll kick it off with with my thoughts, and I've got three main points really, and they're all centered around looking at the bigger picture um, of where we go with ATL skills. And one of the aspects that I would sort of advocate for um, is the inclusion of um, leadership skills within the existing framework. Um, these could be explicitly taught to, to students if they're managing um, CAS projects or service and action projects, the exhibition, student council, you name it. I know that IB schools do give students lots of experiences and opportunities to be leaders. So why not support that with the existing ATL skills, skills uh, framework? I do think, you know, to be a leader, you've got to be able to lead yourself. And I think with states of mind, uh, the self-management and reflection, those skills are already there um, in terms of leading yourself. Um, and then when we're looking at leading others, you could argue, I think, perhaps that within social skills, you can sort of read between the lines and see it there. Um, but I think if our journey with ATL skills has taught us anything, you know, it's the value of explicitly focusing on, on skills and therefore explicitly teaching leadership skills to, to students, I think, will you know, bring great value and benefit to all um, IB stakeholders. It's Adrian. Um, oh, Adrian. My, 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 my question to John is, would you, would you, would you put that in um, as part of the collaboration? Because I, the way I'm, I'm really excited about that idea of actually having leadership skills, what I've noticed in time is that um, the good leaders are good team players. And the idea of actually sorting out collaborative leadership, it might go there. What do you think? I'd agree with you to a point that there is scope for it within the collaboration, within the, the social skills and collaboration. But I, I still think that there's a need for a sort of, you know, a, another extra layer within the ATL skills that would encompass the leadership skills. And your sort of your foundation blocks can be drawn from either the states of mind or the social skills. But then you're enhancing those and, and taking those further. Like for me, I'm thinking, you know, imagine the possibility if we, if we teach our students, you know, sort of things like situational leadership um, and get them to play around with that and understand it and see how that changes um, the way that they lead projects within the school. Yeah, I like it. Are there any certain uh, like links or, or models or things that you've used that you prefer for teaching leadership skills? Um, I've not actually taught any models, um, so to speak. Um, I've, I've sort of worked on, on a curriculum um, that looks at sort of, you know, leading yourself and then leading others in that sort of sense and then breaking that down into certain um, domains of leadership and then what sort of skill models will be used. Um, but nothing I've actually, you know, tried out yet with students. Mm -hmm. Good, good. All right, your second one. Yeah, my, my second point would be, you know, social, emotional learning and, and well-being. I think in the previous podcast we talked about um, the loss of learning in terms of social skills. And I think here, um, you know, it could again be explicitly developed and a requirement for IB schools to timetable a certain amount of hours for all IB students 
um, to take that time to develop and focus on their own social, emotional um, well-being. Again, it is kind of there within the existing framework, um, but it just needs to be more explicit. And again, I, I would advocate for you know mandatory hours to be used for that. I think you know a basis could be the personal social health and education curriculum that I'm familiar with from schools in the UK. I think another advantage of it, particularly in the MYP, is that it would strengthen the role of the homeroom teacher as compared to the role of the homeroom teacher in the PYP. And it also reinforces the significance of school counsellors um, within the ecosystem of um, support of adults for IB students. I know some schools listening will be saying, well, we already have programmes and we already do that, and that, that's great. I'm grateful that at UCSI we've got a robust advisory programme that we've just launched which supports um, SEL and wellbeing. But again, if it's not mandated, um, then I feel like some schools who don't have that, then the students are missing out. And if we're looking at the bigger picture, then I think focusing on students' social emotional well-being is an important thing to do. I hear yeah, can you. I jump in? Yeah, Go can ahead, I jump yeah. in a second as yeah. well, John? Because obviously um, both John and myself have been involved in putting together the the, the advisory curriculum that we're leading to. But uh, within that is that there are already models inside there, and I've, I've, I've got to say that my my wife is a it, it works out of Indonesia and, and she's a dean of students in her school and uh, one of the things she pointed out is that the ATL skills clusters are already littered with SEL they were very much designed around that sort of framework and and the work that Malcolm Nicholson etc did on on stuff for the ATTLs in diploma was very very much an articulation of some of the stuff that was coming out of Castle at the time. So the Castle model, which is the five areas of social emotional competency, are skills, and they link very, very strongly with the the collaborative. They work very, very strongly with the critical critical thinking dimensions in it. So, so the models are there, and if you look at what some schools are already doing, schools such as Bladins in Sweden, uh, Global Jaya in Indonesia, the, the Dwight schools, for instance, their models are very, very robust. But as a as an institutional idea, the IB is very, very bad at sharing anything beyond subject curriculum. We don't really have the forums other than people turning up at a, at a, at a workshop to actually sit down and share that. And I think, I think we've got to look for space where, where, where educators can really share their experiences. So things like this podcast, the uh, NYP chat, Twitter, the, all those sorts of things are in some ways possibly more important than the workshops. Because they're the space that we really need to develop for teachers to talk to teachers. I'm, I'm going to side a bit with you there, Nigel. Um, not that I'm against at all John's idea, but I think if you're going to implement something, and the, what I'd really like the IB to do is spend the necessary time to start thinking about progression. And I, and I think getting that, I think that they've brought in a lot of really good ideas and where they where they not spend the time is 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 thinking about where where does the progression happen, so that you have like really busy minds like 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 we've got here and um, but it it burns up hours it's, and and it takes a, a particular type of nerd to be really really inspired by that kind of that kind of um, level of commitment and involvement and so I think if you I wouldn't want to see the IB bringing in more demands without necessarily all those extra resources to, 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 to deliver them. So get if you get me my program, you get me my, my what does progression look like in 
say, social emotional learning, get that there. And then you can come, come to me and say, now we want this. Um, but when you kind of do it the other way around, we all that happens is we just create lots of busy work. And, and I'm worried. So you'd be talking about the future for ATLs. I'm worried about the, the inordinate amount of hours and, and salaries for, for creating salaried positions for ATL coordinators and things. And it, and it really came down to perhaps having shallow impact just because it was not quite clear what we were doing. So, yeah, give us some clarity and I'm happy to kind of go with it, but, um, but not, the not the requirement first. Yeah, I look forward to hearing you say a little bit more about that uh, when you're sharing kind of your ideas explicitly there, Adrian. Um, yeah, so you stepped in it a little bit there, John. What do you think? No, I, I, I take on board what Adrian's saying. And I think, you know, with any of this, it is about making sure that, yes, my point of mandating hours is so that schools can't say we have a, we can opt in or out of it if the, if the time is mandated type thing. But no need for like for 50 hours type thing. It would obviously be significantly less than that. But yes, it's important that if this was to happen, that the training has to be in place beforehand and part of our rollout process before um, you know anything else was sort of added in in terms of expectations on what I think most schools would already have quite a packed timetable in terms of mandated hours. But yeah, training is is, is vitally important, and I think all of the discussions that we're going to have today and everything we've said in previous podcasts, a lot of it does boil down to having that training. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of that, one of the things that that we've definitely tried to do and is the, the realisation that we don't have enough training time in our day to be able to do lots of the things. And I think that's a very, very important, uh, important step that lots of schools maybe aren't thinking that, that the amount of time you spend on professional capital definitely pays for itself. And the more time that we can spend in actually getting teachers up to speed, because let's admit it, we, we come from very disparate backgrounds in terms of education. You know, sitting just in this room, we've got people that have gone through entirely different experiences of teacher education. We're all working in a system that is, to paraphrase Umberto Echo very badly, we're working in a system that's very, very Catholic, but we're all Protestants. Yeah, and uh, I think I think very, very much in that, that I think, yeah, Adrian's right there, that we that really is finding that time to actually build the nuts and bolts of what we expect. Good. I think actually what I'm really saying is let's cut down the training budget by decluttering and simplifying what we've got. Mm. And if we don't have to have to spend as much time inventing it, then and if it was more there and more present for us, um, I think it would. Uh, we'd yeah, we'd gain back a whole bunch of time that we wouldn't be have to spend on on training. Mm -hmm. So Adrian, with that in mind, um, when you say decluttering, whose system or whose decision making would you um, rely on in the decluttering? Would you would each school? Uh, do it differently or would you like to see the IB uh, create a more streamlined version of what they're doing? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. To be honest, what I would do is I, I would, I would, do you know what? I think they should just adopt an awful lot of what John has done. John's done a really great job with his, um, with his decluttering. If we were just to pick the big, if IB was just to pick the big, um, uh, hard hitting, important skills and were to give more guidance as to how to um, progress through those, 
in those very specific areas that would really help schools. Okay. But Adrian, a thought that a thought that I always have when in, in, when we when, when we discuss this sort of thing at any time is that is the clutter the underlying framework, or is the clutter that something schools have got to because the schools don't really understand what they're doing with it? And I think, and that comes out again. You said something in the last bit then about. I always feel that the the IB is very reluctant to say what it really means sometimes. That sometimes it was for sitting there almost waiting for educators to, to get to the IB viewpoint by osmosis. And I wonder if the clutter's because of that rather than the framework itself. So the schools end up becoming this clutter because they because they there's no real coat hook to hang it off. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an ambiguity in the community as to, you know, um, and I think the biggest ambiguity was this real sense that we had to do all 40, 140 skills. I think that's the, that's the number one big one. And then everybody run around trying to do it. And then they afterwards, after the effect, brought out further guidance, which five people I've ever met have ever read. And it's these document they really need to when they when they I think August they brought out a new they new updated FPIP. Well, why haven't you put further guidance that really would sort out a lot of problems and a lot of anxiety over have we got to, to do it this way um, into the into from principles into practice? Um, why is it still a niche idea that you can um, focus on some? Uh, some skills it, it shouldn't be a niche idea and I, I genuinely think if they'd just reduced if they did gone slightly more than than the five but less than 140 I think we would have had more efficient and effective world practice about what does progression look like this discussion reminds me of kind of the tension when it comes to uh, government regulation versus public safety where you know, a new regulation has to be kind of uh, wedged in between previous statements so that people really understand what the next detail is. And I think that may have it may have become kind of a monster uh, as a result of people wanting more info. And, you know, when you think about the quality control and not to be an apologist for the way IB does things, but, you know, there are thousands and thousands of schools and tens of thousands of people practicing. Uh, and and so when you think about the levels uh, in each in each building, sometimes there's no one in the building who's, you know, capable of the big thinking, or I should say, uh, actually doing the big thinking. I would guess many people, most people are capable, but they may not actually be doing the big thinking or, or have the time or given themselves the agency to kind of think this through more deeply. And so having a list for some people is useful, but of course, then it takes away the, um, the kind of individuality of the, of the program. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right there, John, on, on that very much. So and I think one of the things, two, anecdotally, two incidents from over the last 10 years stand out in my mind. One, one was sat around a table with a lot of heads of school from quite well-known IB schools in a, uh, a triple programme session before a regional conference. And it was just after the ATTLs had been rolled out. And almost to a person, every head of school was saying, that, well, we don't have skills in the diploma. And that links then directly to some, some other stuff that I'm doing at the moment, which is actually I'm going back and I'm reading some of the stuff that Robert Leck actually said back in the 60s. And one of the things Robert Leck said, which, which I find out I'm going to paraphrase it very badly, was that baccalaureate that they produced needed to be sufficient in skills that it was still usable in the year 2000. So all the way back then, the IB diploma was talking about 
skills underlying it. And by the time we get to 2010, schools that are representing the IDB diploma are going, well, we don't have skills in the IDB diploma. We've only got content. And just the thought process that actually you've got to write a commentary for economics. That's a skill. You've got to write write a lab report for group four. That's a skill. They're skills that we've taught all along. And it was almost like we'd forgotten the basis of it. And I think sometimes that's because we get so tied up in that, that minutia of all the other things in it. We forget that big picture that it started off as a very, very skills-rich alternative to national exam systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nigel, point. you're drifting very close to close to one of the points that I was going to bring off. And poor John's never going to get to point three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is is that um, that I think um, there's the trouble with the ATLs? I feel one of the one of the problems with the ATLs is that um, there's the assumption now that skills can be pushed into this generalizability category, and and I do think it would be helpful that we would spend a bit of time exploring which skills are generalizable. I, I don't think they all are. I think some of them are very disciplinary specific. I particularly feel that about thinking skills. Um, I, I think that the way that an artist thinks is different to the way that a scientist thinks, and that's the TOK part of me coming out. Um, and, and like you say, Nigel, DP's already always got the skills. We've always been getting them thinking. We've always been having practicals and getting them writing. That sophistication of seeing that there some skills are like the way that I might write maybe um, in communication, in, in, in science, it's actually too niche for it to be like a whole school thing about writing, writing a lab report, that, that there are some skills that you have to just stick with in the disciplines and some skills that, that are more generic. Like a, I think a presentation, in, a presentation skills is the same for all subjects, but not necessarily all skills are, gen, are fully generalized. Um, so yeah, I, I think that... But also, I guess as well, giving student, uh, schools rather, giving schools the opportunity to, to, to not see everything as um, must-dos and the requirements aspect of things, I think, has come out. I think it comes out unclear in the, in the documents. When I read the documents, um, it's clearer to see what I should and must do than it is to see what I could and may do. Um, and I think that's led to some schools really struggling with the with the ATLs. Again, returning to John's second point, um, some of my hesitancy about bringing in yet another requirement is that we engage with the ATLs as schools very much in a compliance mode. And I think just I think that's what's held us back quite a bit is the the IB's very clear in further guidance and very ambiguous in from principles into practice. I think if the IB can help by making it unambiguously clear that we can be, we can adopt some of our own approaches to way that we implement them, but then at the same time, just give us extra resources of how that, they, that could be done, but make it really clear it must not be, have to be done that way. Mm-hmm. I think really really help because we've 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 become a bit too much um concerned about whether or not managed back is producing the right 
you know, the right um, output for uh, how we covered all these ticked skills. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's, and that was kind of one of the outcomes I wanted from this episode as well is just the idea that you uh, as listeners and as uh, IB leaders in your school have the freedom and uh, we are encouraged to make it your own. So that's a good point. Thanks, John, with apologies. Uh, Maybe we can get to your third point. And obviously, uh, you don't get to just say something and let it sit there. So I'm sure we'll get reaction. And let's uh, let's try that third point of yours. Yeah, thanks, uh, John. Yeah, my, 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 my third point is uh, more towards sort of global competencies. Um, I think over the summer, I sort of took a little bit of a, a dive into, you know, what the OECD has been doing with in terms of uh, global competencies. And, you know, it got me thinking in terms of where the IB is right now, in terms of the curriculum, uh, my thoughts is, you know, we're pretty set that it's about learning through inquiry, we've got concept based, um, it's contextual, and that we need to develop the skills with, with, with learners. And I think perhaps these have been seen as sort of separate entities to a certain degree. And I think, um, you know, they've been competing perhaps for um, demands on, on, on training. I know when the um, when they introduced the next chapter, you know, ATL skills was put at the end of uh, the recommended timeline for schools to sort of focus on, and the you know the um, you know inquiry nature and the global context was sort of at the very beginning of the proposed timelines type thing. But essentially, what that does is shows that you know there is a there's competing demands, um, and that they're not sort of cohesive in, in in that sense in terms of the way that. We have those separate elements within uh, the planning. You know, since the IB does like to take best practices um, and, and and to use those and to put them into the, the programs, you know, I think the OECD has done some some fantastic work on that. Um, you know, they define competency as a you know a holistic concept that includes knowledge, skills, attitudes, and values. It's more than a set of skills. Um, they are a they're a prerequisite. To be competent, students need to be able to use their knowledge and skills and attitudes and values and act in a in you know a coherent, responsible way that can change the future for the better. And if we think about the world in which our students are walking into, um, you know, it's incredibly complex um, and there's lots of uncertainty. And I think even today, Nigel and I were talking about the need for students to. Um, at what point are we scaffolding the students, so to speak, to have flexibility? Um, in the skills that they're using and in and, and which situations they're using those skills. In order to get to that place, I think there needs to sort of be a, a sort of um, a relook at where the ATL skills is within the curriculum and that they're not separate entities, that it's all part of the same thing, for the want of a better word, it's all part of that same framework in that sense. And I think the global competencies just really articulates that incredibly, incredibly well. Um, you know, so that I don't think you're going to get the sort of, you know, the sort of mess or a sort of, you know, a convoluted sort of system or structure that, you know, it's unwieldy and schools find difficult to, to use. Um, I think a lot of the, the framework has already been done. Um, and I think what the, the OECD has done with global competence, I think it aligns and, and links well with the original vision of the founders of the IB who wanted to create a framework which in part included um, learning to learn, that's a direct reference to um, skills, but it's also about how we acquire and apply uh, content and concepts um, at the same time. Interesting. So these competencies, I wrote a couple things about this. So do you think that 
one danger of, of bringing out competencies as opposed to skills. And we've talked before about not assessing skills. Uh, to, competency almost sounds like it begs for uh, an assessment. Uh, is that a, a, a kind of a tricky uh, road that we might end up going down if we're trying to take a look at, at competencies? I don't think so. I mean, I've advocated not, you know, to not assess skills. And I'm, I'm still going to, 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 to stick by that one. But my, my thought process is that in terms of having that discussion about the value of skills and where we're going with skills, you know, I can bang on the drum about ATL skills for, you know, as many hours as I like to, I'm, you know, as ages as I'm one of those ATL nerds, if you will. But at the end of the day, when we're looking at the realities of education, it, it's not just about skills, but it's about the relationship between the other elements of what we need the students to, to understand and engage with. And I just think the, the the global competencies puts it really well and, and really succinctly so that you can see that bigger vision um, and the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I jump jumping in there, Joe, one of the one of the things that thoughts that I got, and and in this, I, I want to make I'm going to make this very personal a little bit about me as well. In the fact that I know before we started recording, we actually mentioned Monty Python. I am a lumberjack. That's what I started off in. I I was 15 years in forestry before I moved into education. So I come from a skills-based background, not an academic background originally. And and in terms of that, some of the things the IBR have been looking at in the last couple of years have actually been in that sort of sphere of what I don't like to call it vocational education. It's, 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 It's trade-based education, it's professional-based education, is very, very skills-based. And you started with skills and then eventually went into into context. Interestingly, most high-level foresters are really good engineers because it's an engineering background in that. And, and, And I think looking back at some of the initiatives in the past, I think we forget about history too quickly sometimes. So in the 1980s, there was a really, really good initiative in the UK called TVEI, which was fundamentally different to anything the UK had done before and had done since. And it was very, very much linking what students learned in the classroom to skills that they learned working with employers. And where it worked was that, and it changed the metaphor. And, I, and, I, and I've been using a metaphor for skills in terms of the idea of assessing, what do we actually mean by assessing skills? And I think we maybe got the metaphor wrong. We keep on talking about beginning, developing, meeting and exceeding. Whereas in learning as it used to be before we invented schools in 1836 or whatever it was, yeah, we used to talk about uh, apprenticeships and journeymen and artisans and masters. So are we really giving students the the right metaphor for why skills are important. Yeah, we need them to be not just apprentices of what they're doing, really to be useful in the future to themselves, not just to society. They maybe need to become masters of what they're doing. And I think really linking it to a need to have skills. And sometimes I think what we end up doing is bolting the skill on, not starting from the skill first. Yeah. And if you think about it, we all do education because we learned to talk, first of all. That was a skill. Yeah. And then we learned to write. That was a skill. Yeah. And by the time we get, and again, going back to Ken Robinson, I think he's right. By the time we get to when students are in grade 11 and 12, we're starting to teach their brain at the side of their body. And we, I think sometimes we need to bring it back in, which, which I think, yeah, the idea that being competent at something. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's really important that we we push this idea that students need to be competent. Go ahead. 
No, I was going to, I'll follow on, because um, I want to make a semantic difference with John's um, um, uh, way of expressing that we don't, that we shouldn't be assessing ATLs. I think we can't not. Mm. Um, and that what I would say was in the same way that we assess content knowledge through an exam, we assess ATL skills through products. It is not possible to, um, for example, if I think MYP, uh, Criterion D assessment in science, and you're going to ask for the kids and they decide to do it in a multimodal form and they produce a video, it's not possible to produce a video that's well-researched, that's well-communicated, that they did together as a, in, in collaboration by organizing themselves without the ATL. So you are, indirectly assessing skills all the time yes. um, in the same way that you are indirectly assessing content, what you know, indirectly through an examination. I think they're just, in, I'm really coming round to saying the same sort of thing as Nigel's saying. Um, it's, it's not seeing these things as end in themselves, but that if you don't have them, you're not going to get to the end that you're aiming for. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think in that Adrian as well is that, if anywhere that we're going to really have formative assessment, it's in the skills, because there isn't an end point. There isn't a culminating task that you can do. It's always going to develop. Yeah, I think that one of the things also that I was wondering about, and this will bring uh, Adrian into the conversation again, I think, um, when you mentioned competencies, John, I was also thinking in terms of, of the generalization comments that Adrian made, um, and also connecting with the lumberjack uh, in the room, Nigel, uh, is that you know the competencies are to me they seem like they might be more I wouldn't say siloed, but they might be more specific to the student. Whereas you know I don't particularly think of myself as having competencies in art. Um, I have respect and, and enjoyment of it, but I personally am not skilled at it and wouldn't have past any test of competency. Um, so do you think that in this re this regard, when we talk about competencies, we might find ourselves um, no longer looking at generalizable uh, things, or this would also direct us toward the lack of uh, generalized ability, if that's a word? So, okay, so maybe your competencies in art are not at a level of hmm. an artist, but your general competencies, which everybody would share, I would like to think that we can move everybody's competencies up in a general fashion, but in the same way, I'm absolutely terrible at languages. I've always been terrible at languages. I'm never going to be great at them. So, 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 so you get to the stage where you go, okay, I'm going to do as good as I can get. Yeah. I'm never, ever going to be somebody that's going to sit down and read um, Voltaire in first language. Yeah. I'm never going to be that, but I'm going to get as good as I can get. And I'm going to be happy with that. And I think maybe sometimes the idea that we, there isn't, that there's a super end point doesn't matter, that there's an end point that's personal to you, which I think is that going back to what you said, it, it needs to be personal to the student. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that's what John was referring to in terms of, and John can speak for himself, to be honest. When I think global competencies and I think about the work that the OECD has been doing, um, I, I think of um, the competency to be able to operate within a global society. And to be honest, I would say that that's immediately made me thinking about international mindedness. And I think we've spent a lot of time not even thinking that international mindedness is a skill. It's some sort of uh, magic ingredient that just floats up from the surface of, of IB education. 
Um, I would love to see international mindedness being seen as a skill in itself. Uh, I, I loved John's idea. Um, it does fit quite nicely into some other thinking that I've been doing. And this is partly what I meant by simplifying everything. I think if we saw skills as not means to their ends, but actually not as ends in themselves, but rather as means to the ends. And if we saw education as a whole as being the means to a better world, a better, more peaceful society, and that being global content competency, um, and could articulate what it meant to be internationally minded or globally competent, you know, to actually know something about what's going on in the world other than my own universe, to actually be able to adopt other perspectives than just my own, to listen to, to pursue um, action on, on things that motivate and, um, and engage me. If, if that's what John means, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be your strongest supporter. I think we really should be seeing these skills, seen as, as expressing these as skills. Uh, any other thoughts on, on that idea? Yeah, just, just to circle back on, on a few points there. Um, in terms of what, what I sort of mean by this is it's about moving beyond just seeing the skills as we need to do this in order to do X, Y, and Z type thing um, and seeing skills as a separate part of the framework. So it is looking at you know the bigger picture in, in that sense and how we can um, move students in that direction. And even when we're talking, you know, Nigel says he's not good at art. I'm also terrible at maths. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm, I'm awful, awful at maths. But in terms of our discussions that we're saying, you know, we're saying, imagine if we understand that you know, there's a certain point that personally, there's a certain competency level that I'm happy to arrive at and I'm, I'm happy at that in that sense. If our students then have those sorts of conversations with their teachers, where they're demonstrating you know, a sort of a growth mindset attitude to their learning and there are different values to it and how they're going to then use the knowledge and the skills to improve that level of competency, then I think in terms of student overall development, it moves the conversation um, to a, a far more deeper level and, a, and a, a level that's, I think, possibly more actionable um, for the students as well. In, interestingly, John, one of the things, and it's just it's a thought I just had during the conversations we've had it now, is that we've given three examples of subjects that we are thinking of as skills. So we've talked about language, we've talked about art, and we've talked about mathematics. But we don't mm. talk about economics as a skill, and we don't talk about biology as a skill. And I wonder why that is, why we see certain subjects as skills in themselves. Because yeah, is being a biologist a skill? Or is it the skills inside biology that makes you a biologist as opposed to being a mathematician seems to be a skill in itself? Yeah. And, I, and like I said, I only just thought of, thought of that. I wonder yeah. if sometimes that clouds it in certain subjects as well, that you've got to have these lots of skills to be good in one. But in one of them, it's just the, the subject itself is a skill. And I think if you talk to the practitioners, this, the, the specialists in each of those areas, say uh, professionals in the field, I would say that they wouldn't consider their subject itself a skill. I would think it would be what you said earlier, which is that the skill set within them mm. is is necessary, a good, strong skill set. For example, I was a biology teacher at times. And so I would think about um, you know the skill set that I would expect my students to have would be uh, great observational skills, interpretation-related skills, 
and and the ability to kind of synthesize information to kind of create an understanding of how systems work. Uh, those kind of things are the skill set, and I wouldn't necessarily think of it. And then my first impression of art, for example, would be that, oh, yeah, that's skills. But then I mm-hmm. think about an artist, they're probably thinking about uh, their ability to conceptualize a visual field, what they're looking at, how to kind of draw it in, how to create emotion, um, the skill set to be able to link between what's happening in their head and what's happening uh, that they're seeing in front of them with their eyes. It, I would guess, this is my first impression, is that the professionals in the field would actually believe that it is that group of skills that together, obviously, someone has, you know, motor skills to be able to create the shapes in a in a visually appealing way. But at the same time, I'm sure they would have other other input in, in this discussion. Mm, the way I'm, I think I would have agreed with you, Nigel, until I started teaching TOK mm. um, or, or really not, not started. I was floundering um, but when I <laughs> finally kind of felt that like I was reasonably confident in teaching TOK. Um, because my first thought was actually, no, I didn't, wouldn't agree with you um, because I think bringing your economics hat to any discussion is the skill you're bringing, bringing your, your, um, your understanding of say the ecosystem or whatever it is that as a biologist or not biologist, but more of a chemist, if I bring my, my understanding of matter and how it, how it interacts with one another and, and understanding resources brings a skill to a, a problem. So I think it's a way of thinking. Yeah, and, and, and that's where my thought process is going on it, that we see the outside and the inside of things. And, and, and maybe we're losing the big picture sometimes in it, that like every subject is already full of a lot of skills. And add in, and I agree with you, Adrian, I think like, like simplification, we, we, need, we need simplification that creates complexity. It's how, these, it's how students join the skills together later on that's important. Maybe not what we're doing in the classroom now. And if we can bring in that sort of, and, and you used a word earlier that, that I'd been struggling with the word for all day about. I wonder sometimes if, as educators, we're actually sophisticated enough to see that for ourselves without it being pointed out to us. I think the way education's run a lot whether it's in the UK because you suddenly had got like these requirements to be hit when Ofsted was coming to see you, or if you or you had school inspectorate, or you had to, um, you've got evaluation coming up in NYP, or you've got um, a performance appraisal. It it's become very easy to or safer even to to go to well look I've done what you asked me to do thanks very much, and I, and I think. Um, I was, I was, actually, it was, I was even pausing to think. I wonder how helpful this section of the podcast is to the listening audience as we, as we ruminate over what are quite broad and and, and um, you know questioning questioning the basis kind of questions. But yeah, do we even allow ourselves enough time in our profession to do that pause to think? How do we reconceptualize the way that we are um, seeing skills, and that maybe maybe certain sophistications come out of that if we gave ourselves the time? Um, thanks, John, for giving us some time to think about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because in, in my head, that's where that's where my thoughts are. In that, like, if we're always trying to push it through a sausage maker of compliance, we're never ever really going to 
develop that deep understanding. And John and myself were talking about this this earlier, and I, and I went back to, to something Michael Fullan said, which is obviously based on somebody else, that reality is that to become a competent teacher takes eight years, the 10,000 hours. And do we have the 10,000 hours of a teacher to become competent in really understanding what a skills-rich curriculum really looks like, even if that skills-rich curriculum is right in front of us all the time? I mean, to be honest, I, I think that leaves things too daunting to the to mm. the listener. I, and I'd rather say, yes, I think you can, because I think if you made it simpler, I think, like you pointed out, if we just, I think it's, I think it really could be made very simple down mm. to where do you want people to end up? So we want them to be knowledgeable. We want them to be able to um, to to design products and to design and come up with solutions to 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 matters of of, of relevance. We want them to be able to think about the world and the and understand sort of the meta narrative around them. We we want them to be active citizens in the world. We want them to be able to take action and made it the big focus the goal. The goal is active citizens that know something about the world and can actually do something about it. The skills then just become this thing that everybody just, what do you, what do you want to achieve? We've got, we, we better be able to, I want them to be able to, to write a newspaper article on this. Okay, so then we need to teach them how to write a newspaper article. I want them to be able to, um, to lobby government. I mean, I think we should be teaching lobbying um, um, skills and, and and how to how to actively protest properly. Um, I, there is a lot of skills that I think are not traditional in education that could really be. What does it mean to actually um, to to win friends and influence people? Those those sorts of skills that can make a change and a difference in the world, um, and then not wrap it up in a prescriptive framework, but just offering, as I say, I go back to this thing of offering tools to help help with schools get to their goals. And so if I understand, John, I'm still not sure if I completely understood your 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 um, your idea of global competency, but but maybe another way of looking at it is just um, effective citizens in the world. Yeah, that we would um, we would have this more holistic way of seeing the program, not in its different components, but just that all factors work together towards this final goal. I think that kind of wraps it up quite quite succinctly, Adrian, what I'm sort of um, trying to advocate for, but also thinking of linking it back to um, the training. If it is very open-ended in terms of active citizens without any sort of scaffolding to help, you know, coordinators and, and teachers to know how to get there. Um, so I was kind of like leaning on the global competencies framework in terms of this is what we would be sort of um, expect or, you know, not necessarily expected to do, but these are the things that we could consider um, to do. And therefore, as part of this is what we need, this is what we're working towards. Then the training sort of is sort of like wrapped and molded around that so that people can sort of see that they're making progress. Like you go back to the skills of you know, the 140 skill indicators. I remember when, when we when I first saw that document and I was like, how is that even possible to do? So then the idea of if we use models, you can condense the skill indicators and you sort of make the process um, simpler and easier to understand for everybody else. And that ease makes people more confident to be able to sort of use it in that sense. And, you know, 
even from this, and, and I think it's, it's about time and I, in terms of the time to work on this and to think about this as well. And I think also having the forums to have these discussions. Um, because I'm sure there's loads of other people from different, you know, schools and, and different cultures and geographical areas who've got some great ideas on this. How, where is our forum to sort of have that sort of discussion? You mentioned about lobbying. Um, it's honestly something that I've never even thought of. Um, but you're right. It's, you know, lobbying is such an influential thing that many people are able to do. Where is it? Where, where, where are the opportunities for us to use it in our schools um, is part of that conversation that, you know, I'm definitely going to be having to see where it can be implemented. But again, those ideas come from these sorts of discussions. And again, finding the time and the forum as well is also important. Yeah. Can I be, can I be un, a, a bit unashamed and, and just uh, do a little plug? I, I've, I've been ruminating about frameworks. Uh, as probably you know, John. And so I have this thing I'm calling the My Place in the Story framework, which I can share in the, the show notes if you're interested, uh, John. But um, Please do. the idea is is actually relatively simple one. It's how do we get from, we, it's like a three by three matrix um, where the top left-hand corner is um, just the knowledge in that the individual holds, which is kind of, I'm, I would sort of uh, postulate is where a lot of education spent a lot of its time, but it moves across towards thinking as it, to the, to the right-hand side, it moves towards what kind of action can we take via, have we made personal meaning out of this, this, um, this, this content that we're learning. Um, and it also moves down um, in terms of uh, impact onto our uh, immediate society and then uh, into the into the globe and and I guess what we're wanting is we're wanting students to eventually kind of ha take action in the world um, and the idea then is that um, and then I stopped and thought because I like to be a holistically think where do the ATLs fit into this um, and um, so I've logged on that and I, but I see that that the ATLs are the the way that we move through this make this this framework and that if we really want if we want to be active in the world based on what we're finding out and through our education then we need those skills to make that transition um and so i think you're right i think if we gave if we gave frameworks more than lists and um saw how it was all integrated then I think that um, they wouldn't, people wouldn't see it so strange. Um, I'm gonna, if you don't mind while well, I've got the mic, um, dovetail it and just to the one other point that I was gonna bring, I think that, that, that the, the, the concepts fit that. Um, if we can teach them skills of how to think conceptually, not just, I think sometimes we do where's Wally with, um, with, uh, with the concepts, we sort of spot them in the unit and, you know, and, and categorize the unit with a tag and, and, and move on. But, but how do we want our kids to actually think about the world? How do we want them to see um, their place in it? And um, how do we want them to understand? Um, I, I, it's, I think it's bad that we, 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 we've got so many massive things happening in the world and, and the kids are confused about it and they don't quite necessarily understand all the various things that are going on. How do we help them to be more skillfully aware of what's happening in the world around them? Um, and I think 
I think I see conceptual based learning as, as a skill we want to get the kids using, not just a teaching strategy. That's my bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think very much so, Adrian. I think um, one of the th- one of one of the thoughts that John and myself were talking earlier, obviously in school about this, is that I wonder sometimes if the students understand that the skills have a link to what they'll do outside of the box of school. That we hang the idea of communication off a presentation, but most students aren't going to go on and be educators or stay in academia. They're going to go on and have jobs in other industries. And I think maybe sometimes that the frameworks that we were using, that we, that we, we they're, they're normal in other industries. And I think sometimes we don't learn from, from those sorts of things. So, so making those connections that are very, very real puts that the student back in that idea of place in the world. And I like that idea that the idea of the narrative of who yeah who we are how do we get there I like that that narrative idea in there and and building that in there because as part of that narrative is what do I need to move from A to B and and I think that's something that yet yeah, again thinking in terms of the concepts that we would continually be told that the concepts are transferable but the skills definitely are transferable they should be transferable. Excellent. Yeah. You know, as, as uh, you referred to a while ago, Adrian, you said something about the fact that, you know, how's this working out for the listeners? How does this particular podcast uh, connect with uh, people listening? And uh, as the, the term that comes to mind for me is that, you know, this is to me, as I'm watching this unfold in front of me and we're recording it, is that this is essentially a panel discussion that I kind of wish we had at a, at a training conference or at a conference because I think uh, one of the things that uh, teachers um, lose out on is time to reflect and to think about big ideas that you guys are talking about. Um, I, I sometimes use the metaphor, if you're familiar with the video game Guitar Hero, uh, where you pick up the plastic guitar and push the buttons for about three minutes and 20 seconds. And then at the end, you throw it down exhausted because you kept up with that. That's what, to me, the school year is like. It's like in the middle of the school year, you are just making things happen and take, keeping up with the due dates and and uh, reacting to the moment uh, every day. Uh, and it isn't until you take a little break that you get a chance to think about what you're doing. And I think for listeners, as I hope you are using this and will use this uh, recording, is that you just let uh, these ideas flow over you and see what kind of sticks with you and and dig a little deeper with some links we have or just thoughts that have been expressed here. Because I think um, the purpose of this um, episode wasn't, in fact, to give you some agency and some chance to think about things differently. And we're certainly hearing that from the the three people we have on right now. So thanks to all of you for that. Um, I don't want to necessarily cut you short, but I want to also make sure you all get a chance to uh, make any points. I've noticed that the points that you came in here wanting to make, many of them have been made in the context of uh, what turned out to be John's ideas, but everyone, you know, each of you has a chance. Go ahead and uh, anything else that you want to make sure our listeners are getting a chance to uh, hear from you. I just want to say um, it's been great. I, I love this conversation. I think um, if we can get back to just give, yeah, this agency to give schools a sense of purpose, not just process. Yeah, I think this is. I think this has been a really wide-ranging and very helpful conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, uh, the, the same. I, well, I have one last thought, which is probably more. It's probably more because of where John and I are based rather than where Adrian's been mainly based and John, you're based, is the fact that one of the things we we, we, could, we talk a lot about 
the skills development of students. But also we have teachers kind of as the IB spreads and, and grows, and admittedly it's growing at a, at a relatively fast pace, is that educators are coming to the IB from backgrounds and pedagogies that don't have this underlying skills in it, that, don't, that are just about, and I think that's where making the space available is going to be really important, not only with the teachers that are exhausted in the middle of the years who come from a pedagogy that might have some conceptual understanding in it, might have some skill-based understanding, but educators were coming from maybe smaller national curricula, which have been very much driven by content and I think definitely we've got to make space available. We've got to find ways to do that by, and I think Adrian's right, simplifying, simplifying, making it that it's already in there. And all we've got to do is pull it out and tease it a little bit. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, thank you. Um, anything else from uh, folks here? Uh, I'd just like to say uh, thanks so much, uh, Nigel and Adrian, for uh, making the time to join on join join myself and John on, on this podcast. Um, I was really looking forward to the whole week and even like today I was very excited to sort of uh, see what we're going to be discussing as well. So it's been it's been really cool. And I haven't had like such an invigorating ATL conversation in such a long time and it's definitely giving uh, me a lot of food for thought as well moving forward. Um, so, so thank you both Nigel and, and Adrian and, and John, thanks again for uh, your patience with waiting for this podcast to series to, to launch. But I think it's, it's, it's been a great experience and I hope those that have been listening um, have really taken on board um, what we've said and are finding it useful and helpful uh, in their schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, John, for all your work. Uh, for the listeners, um, Just I, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but the amount of work that John puts into preparing for each one of these episodes has been enormous. Uh, and John, you know, over 5,000 people have listened to these podcasts in the last uh, six weeks. So uh, you definitely have lots of folks listening and paying attention. So, yeah, that's it's pretty amazing to me, the response, and it continues to to happen. And so, again, uh, those of you that are listening, um, one more one last chance, even though we're not um, planning on another in the series, uh, we still have the 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 form online that you can respond to. So if you check the links in the podcast notes and if you have ideas to build on what you heard in this episode, uh, you may want to just jump in. And, and in fact, uh, like I said, in the last episode, I have a, someone already lined up to kind of uh, do an epilogue to this a uh, little bit, talking specifically about PYP. And so uh, others of you listening want to join in or, or bring your ideas to four, please uh, make that effort to contact us here at IB Matters. So thanks to all of you. Thanks, Nigel, Adrian, and of course, to you, John, for all the time that's been uh, put into this whole thing. And um, we welcome uh, your feedback to the listeners and, and uh, look forward to uh, continuing these discussions. You can learn much more about ATLs and other aspects of the IB Pre-K to 12 Continuum of Education using links in our podcast notes, as well as on the IB website at ibo.org. Now that we have over 90 IB Matters episodes covering a range of subjects, you can use our podcast webpage, which is organized by program and by topic. The link to the website is also in our podcast notes. Please find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe so you don't miss any future programs. Join our over 3,500 followers on Twitter at MattersIB. Also, help us spread the word about IB by liking, sharing, and reviewing the IB Matters links in your own feeds and social networks. In our time on the air, we've been heard in over 150 countries, a testament to the global reach of the IB.